Support for this podcast comes from Frito-Lay in the 2023 Snack Bracket Championship. The Frito-Lay Snacket Challenge is underway, and fans are voting on their favorite snacks to crown champion. We're talking about primetime matchups between the best 64 snacks in the land. Will Ruffles Ridges reign supreme? Can Doritos defend their dynasty? Or will Smart Food use their smarts for a surprise upset? Only you can decide. Get in on all the action for a chance to win up to $1,000 or a year's worth of snacks. Let your snacks be heard. Just go to Frito-LaySnackIt.SBNation.com to vote and enter for a chance to win. No purchase necessary. Sweepstakes ends April 3rd, 2023. Void but prohibited. Years worth of snacks awarded in the form of 52 coupons, each good for one bag of chips. See official rules at Frito-LaySnackIt.SBNation.com. Hey, everyone. This is Laz Jackson of Detroit Bad Boys. And on this week's episode, we're talking about your three and nine Detroit Pistons. Ben Galker and I talk about Cade Cunningham's aggressiveness, how Jeremy Grant is like Jerry Stackhouse, and the ripple effects of the Kelly Olenek injury. As always, we appreciate your continued support of the podcast. The best way to do that is to share, subscribe, and leave comments. Please leave comments on the discussion post on Detroit Bad Boys. That's the best way for us to have the conversation that we want to have around the podcast. In order to do that, though, you have to follow DetroitBadBoys.com, which you should be doing, because it's the best place on the internet for Pistons news and analysis this season. With all that said, it's time to go to work. Welcome to this week's episode of the Detroit Bad Boys podcast. I am your host, Lazarus Jackson, and I'm pleased to be joined by my usual co-host, Ben Gulker. What's up, Ben? Laz, glad to be back. You know, seven days ago at this time, you were flying solo because I was in the hospital. So uh, I'm feeling really grateful to be back in the swing of things. Uh, For those who don't know, I had to have an emergency appendectomy, so I am a little lighter than I was a week ago. But grateful to be back, grateful to be feeling better today than yesterday, feeling grateful for family and friends who helped support me over the past week and are, are helping me get better. So so especially glad this week, Laz, to be back and chatting about the Pistons. I am I am grateful to have you here, as always, and definitely more so than usual. Uh do you think you're in more or less pain than Kelly Olenek right now? Oh, I'm I'm thinking I probably got to be in less pain right now. Um, seven days later, it's remarkable how quickly the body can recover. I would think Kelly's probably having a if if he's walking at all, I would think he's got to be having some pain. It doesn't sound like uh, his injury is too pleasant to experience from what I can tell. Oh, yeah, no, none too pleasant. Kelly Olenek, of course will be sidelined at least six weeks with a grade two MCL sprain in his left knee. Um, That MCL sprains can be categorized as like very, very tiny tears and he will be reevaluated in six weeks. And so I would expect the timeline to be more in the neighborhood of like nine to 10 weeks, if we're being perfectly honest. So Ben, the Pistons are going to be without their best bench player and uh, key free agent acquisition for the next six to nine weeks. What kind of uh, impact do you think that's going to have on the roster? What do you what do you think we we saw this week in the rotation that changed because of the Olenek injury? Yeah, well, I think we're going to see 
probably two things and one of those things probably more than the other. Uh, and I think what we saw against Toronto was probably the thing we're going to see more of, and that is small ball, unfortunately. Um, I mean, I think as long as Isaiah Stewart can stay out of foul trouble, we'll probably see bigger doses of him, which I think will be good, right? It gives him an opportunity uh, to get some more minutes than he was getting, um, you know, especially with uh, Kelly being such a big, important role of that second unit. But, you know, I wouldn't be surprised or opposed to also seeing, you know, small doses of Luca Garza uh, when we're playing more traditional uh, big men. You know, obviously Luca still still a very long way away from being NBA ready. Um, but look, I think you can give him some shots opportunistically in the right matchups as well. But, yeah, I mean, Trey Lyles at center, who would have thought that would be a thing? Yeah, that was uh... – that's very interesting. It's it's fascinating to me that after we malign Troy Weaver for his love of centers, suddenly the Pistons <laughs> are going to be forced to play small for the next uh, six to nine weeks. Um, you have a, a higher opinion of uh, Garza's NBA readiness than I do, and you categorized it as uh, he's still not ready. It, it will be. I do think he will get opportunities. He got one in Cleveland this week. It went supremely poorly, which – uh, was to be expected. Um, it's going to be extremely, extremely difficult to find matchups in which it makes sense for it may, its advantage, like def- it's advantageous defensively to play Garza. And so you're right, we're we're going to see more small ball. Um, what that means is like that's Trey Lyles at center. We saw a little bit of Jeremy Grant at center against the Toronto Raptors, um, and. Uh, you talked about the impact on Stewart lengthening his minutes. That's another great call out. But I, the other thing I wanted to point out is that this will exacerbate something we've already kind of like banged our head about Ben, and that's the rebounding, right? We saw this in the Toronto game. They got killed on the offensive glass. And that is something that I think we can expect to happen like even in a, even more often uh, now without Kelly Olenek, who was like no great shakes as a rebounder, but um, wasn't like Trey Lyles or Jeremy Grant at center out there. And so that's losing those extra possessions is going to be tough. It's going to make the Pistons an even worse. Um, the defense is what the Pistons are better at right now, but it's going to make them a worse defensive team. And so we'll, I will be interested to see if Dwayne tries to push like any other buttons to make up for the fact that they've lost uh, out on uh, on some rebounding prowess. Uh, but with that said, like, you know, you were hurt. Kelly Olenek was hurt, but we had a good week of Pistons basketball. <laughs> Somehow they went two and one. They won uh, against Houston and Toronto, both games on the road. They won two road games. They have more road victories than home victories, Ben, which is wild. Um, they broke the national TV curse. I don't know if broke the curse is accurate, but they won a game on national TV, which seems like it never happens. And uh, they they also had the Dwayne Casey special in Toronto where uh, they've made shots for the first time all year. Ben, uh, did you enjoy? That was an enjoyable week of Pistons basketball. How many more weeks are, like that are we going to get? <laughs> the the two-win week, yeah, on the road, the second one, uh, also a back-to-back, right, where they had Very just true. basically forgot to show up against Cleveland. Yeah, I mean, burn the Cleveland tape, forget that game happened. Um write that up to a young team being young and just, you know, forgetting to show up. And I think, you know, as fans enjoy the wins, those were both fun wins. The Toronto win in particular, 
very competitive, especially in the fourth quarter. They held off a surge from, you know, a superior Toronto team down the stretch. They won that game in the second half. Uh, Cade Cunningham obviously shining brightly in the last few minutes. So, yeah, that absolutely the right way to say it. It was a it was a very fun week. Um, especially, you know, you mentioned the rebounding and some of the deficiencies with the Olenek injury. I mean, to win that one in Toronto, um, you know, per- particularly a commendable and notable win. No, absolutely. You you brought up Kate Cunningham. Let's talk about Kate Cunningham. So he won the matchup with Jalen Green by winning the game. Um, he had two very clutch baskets in isolation against, again, like one of the league's better defenders in OG Ananobi in Toronto. Um, you tweeted that is it you tweeted that Kate is one of the most unselfish number one picks that you've ever seen as a rookie. And we've seen him come up in the clutch um, multiple times this season, but it seems to come at the uh, expense of not uh, as a, there's a lack of production kind of earlier in games. And so do you think Kate needs to be more aggressive then? That's a great question, Laz. Um, you know, I think generally, big picture, I'm satisfied with the amount he has the ball in his hands. Um, I'm satisfied with the number of opportunities he gets to create place for himself and others. And I think I'm mostly satisfied with the number of shots he's getting. I mean, I think all of that from a macro perspective is fine. But uh, aggressive is a good word for it because I would really like to see him put the ball on the floor more instead of settling for jump shots. I think, you know, if you look at the Toronto game, this is just the perfect example. He didn't take a two-point field goal until the fourth quarter with just a few minutes left on the clock, right? I mean, he was, you know, like one for six or one for seven from deep, I think, in the first three quarters. And that's all That's all he did. Um, I, I just want someone to show him the tape and just drill it into his head that he is a handful off the dribble, um, you know, especially that double crossover he had late against Toronto. It just, just beautiful, gorgeous basketball. And I think borderline unstoppable. I mean, he gets to his spots off the dribble just about on command. I mean, there are times when the defense is able to stifle him, but it's remarkable how easily he's able to get where he wants to be on the basketball court when he's on the dribble. And that's really what I'd like to see him more. I think I'm fine with, you know, when the ball swinging around the perimeter and it gets to him and he's open, I think I'm fine with that three point shot being taken I think he needs to continue to take those because he needs to add that to his game as a consistent weapon. But, you know, some of those threes that he's taking after one or two dribbles, those are the kind of looks that I'd like to see him convert into dribble drives all the way to the basket because it's just such a dynamic weapon in his tool set. And, uh, you know, I, I think he's just doing the defense a favor. He's letting them off the hook when he's not pressuring like that. Um, you know, so that if if he's to be more aggressive, I think for me, that's the area I really want to see it the most. Yeah, you you brought up what partially of what I was going to say, which was letting the defense off the hook. Um, I do think the thing I would tell Cade is that, uh, like this was the scout on him coming out of college, right? It was that he would kind of take his time to diagnose how defenses were recovering him and what defenses were doing, and like use the fir- the whole first half in college to do that, and then kind of come out in the second half and make plays and make more plays and all of a sudden, uh, you know, make plays in winning time and Oklahoma state would be in good position. The thing I would tell Cade is that um, like a NBA defenses are better than college defenses. And so like they will eventually adjust to what you're doing. 
if you start, uh, you know, doing the same thing, even even in the even in the in crunch time, and if you aren't, I would tell them if you aren't more aggressive in like the first and second quarters, like there will be a lot of games this season where there won't be a crunch time, right? Mm-hmm. There will not be an opportunity for you to impose your will on the game in the late in the fourth quarter because the game will not be close and you probably won't be playing. And so it was like, so we, you know, two points scored in the first quarter counts the same as two points scored in the fourth quarter. And so, you know, we need you to attack the rim more decisively, uh, more consistently in like the first half of games. Um, I don't think, I don't, you're right, Ben. I don't think he's like settling, but I do think he's not like, he's not exerting himself as much as he possibly could. And I think that that is something that we need to keep an eye on. Um, you know, it, you, like you were saying, Toronto's the second night of a back-to-back. They did get like pretty mollywopped in Cleveland. It wouldn't surprise me. And, and he is still coming off the ankle. It wouldn't surprise me if he's not like completely in NBA back-to-back shape right now. And that's part of the reason why his shot attempts were a little bit lower. The Pistons don't play a back-to-back this week. Now they play a back-to-back like late this week. Um, but yeah, I, I, that's what I would tell Cade. Is like we, if you're going to impose your will on the game, we need you to do it for as long as you're on the court and not just in crunch time because there won't be much crunch time for you to do that in a lot of the time this season. And those reps are important, honestly. Uh, next guy, Jeremy Grant. Jeremy Grant had 19 points in the third quarter. Speaking of guys who are imposing their will on the game, 19 point third quarter against Houston, 30 points against Houston. Um, was one of the few guys to be able to put the ball in the basket against Cleveland with 16 points at 25 or 24, five and five, excuse me against Toronto. But uh, you tweeted during the Toronto game. I think that Jeremy Grant needs to be the next Jerry Stackhouse. So I wanted to ask you, what did, what did you mean by that? <laughs> Yeah, to the benefit um, of the listeners, I wrote a miniature novel in our notes about this question, and I'm not going to read all of it. I wrote way more than I'm going to say. So I'm kind of thinking about this in two different ways, and I'll just kind of lay them out there and briefly say what I mean. The first one is, like, what is a guy who does what Jeremy Grant does on the basketball court worth? And I mean this in terms of wins and losses, and then what do you pay him? Like, how much money do you give him and what kind of contract? And then the second thing I'm thinking about is a Cade contender, right? And what is that timeline? When are you trying to target making the next step? It's obviously not this season, right? It's probably not next season. It's probably still a couple of years down the road. And what sort of financial commitments do you need to make and avoid in order to give yourself as much flexibility as possible, especially because you don't necessarily know who Kate is yet as an NBA player. Like you have, you have some ideas, but you don't specifically know who you need to surround him with yet. Right. So, you know, thinking about all of those things, um, how I would briefly evaluate Jeremy Grant. And and before I even say that, I realize there are very smart basketball minds who don't agree with me on this. And so I, I could be wrong. Um, there are people who make millions of dollars to make very important basketball decisions who don't agree with me on this. So I get it. I have a little bit of a minority perspective on this, but in Les, you might not agree either. And I respect your 
opinion, tremendous amount. So I just might be wrong on the way I evaluate Jeremy and guys like him. But, you know, my current thinking is you know, Jeremy is a very dynamic and versatile scorer. And I think you can look at the Toronto game and the Houston game. Um, and if you can ignore some of his bad ISO attempts, which he still seems to be prone to take, like he's really hard to guard. And when he's moving without the basketball and catching the ball and just going two, three dribbles and shooting and scoring, I think he's a very difficult guy to guard. And he can chew up a big chunk of NBA offense on his own at basically league average efficiency, right? And his low turnover rate actually makes him a little bit better than that. If you take turnover, he's a really low turnover guy. Um, but then the weaknesses of his game, especially because you line him up at power forward, right? And Sadiq is kind of playing some of that role on defense, especially rebounding, but you have some trade-offs. He's a bad rebounder. Um, he is, I think, a plus defender, especially off the ball. But the question is, in a year and a half, um, did the Detroit Pistons, who are building toward a Cade timeline, like what do they value Jeremy Grant as? Um, given that evaluation, right? Maybe Troy Weaver evaluates him differently, but that's how I evaluate him right now. And I worry that he's going to command a max contract and I really don't want to give him a max contract. Um, I've thought about like comps, like who do you compare him to? And the closest guy I keep coming up with is Tobias Harris, not because they're similar players, but because, you know, Tobias is probably going to lead the 76ers in scoring, or maybe he'll end up being second to Embiid. Um, and they pay him the max, right? And he fits there. He plays a really important role there. Um, but like, do I, do I, he, but I wouldn't say he's their best player, right? Like I think Embiid is their best player. And, you know, are the Pistons at a point where they'd want to max out someone who's probably not going to be their best player, right? We, we, we want Cade to be that guy. Um, so that's where I get a little bit nervous. And then, you know, the second question, and this is kind of where the, the Stackhouse comparison came into my mind, is really about the timeline. Um, you know, thinking about when the Pistons traded Stack, he had just come off of a 50-win season. He was the leading scorer for that team. The season before that, he scored almost 30 a game. Um, you know, he was there and an integral part of the rebuild. But, you know, Joe Dumars decided they needed to make a stylistic change. They went out and got Chauncey Billups in free agency. Ben Wallace had emerged as sort of the cornerstone of the defense and was just sort of shaping the entire roster and then of course they traded him for rip hamilton a guy who was a very dynamic scorer in his own right but was never a 29 per game uh, kind of scorer and was a very different type of player right very didn't need the ball in his hands moving off screens all of those sorts of things right so they made a very conscious t choice to change uh, the makeup of the team and the style of the offense in order to try to make the next step, become more versatile, become more dynamic, uh, get the ball into multiple people's hands instead of just one and so on. Um, and so that was kind of my thinking, like, okay, you've got this timeline that you built around Rip and Chauncey and Ben. You've got a timeline now that you're trying to build around Cade. Um, you know, in a year and a half, do you want to max Jeremy Grant? Is that the right time? to be maxing Jeremy Grant or near maxing Jeremy Grant? Or would an alternative be to consider, you know, okay, even though this guy has been really good for us, he's been, you know, a very important part of the rebuild. You know, he scored a whole lot of points and carried a whole lot of offensive weight, just like Jeremy Grant has done. You know, would it make sense to try to trade that guy before you have to max him to bring in some assets that, 
uh, maybe match your Cade timeline a little better. So anyway, I'm going to stop talking because I just said a lot. <laughs> um, but you know, that's just kind of my thinking. Like philosophically, I, I don't value the guys who score a lot without doing some of those other things as much as other people do. And then secondarily, um, I just don't want to prematurely give out a whole bunch of money when the rest of the Cade timeline is still, in my opinion, two or three years away. So that, that was kind of my thinking around that last. Okay. Okay. So the first thing I will say is that uh, Jeremy Grant signed a three-year deal last season. We are not even, we're still a, like, we're still more than a year and a half and away from deciding what to give like unrestricted free agent Jeremy Grant. And so there will be, the roster will be different somehow by the time the Pistons have to make a determination on what Jeremy Grant is worth. And so that is a question as like I'm interested in, but not like really going to worry about trying to answer, right? Um, I, I agree that guys who put the ball in the basket tend to get overpaid. Um, you brought up Tobias Harris. That is an excellent, excellent example. Um, I was thinking more along the lines of like Harrison Barnes. Harrison mm. Barnes, another guy who yeah. um, really has progressed uh, as a shooter over the last couple of years, obviously had success in Golden State uh, earlier on in his career. Um, now he's just kind of a, a do-it-all wing with a premium as a 20-point-per-game guy. And he signed a four-year, $85 million contract, uh, what, like two years ago? And so... Like you, you can you can afford to get if you can get Jeremy Grant at closer to like twenty twenty five million rather than like the thirty seven thirty eight million Tobias Harris is making, then like yeah, it's a, that's an attractive proposition. That's he's probably quote unquote like worth that. Um, as far as trading Jeremy Grant goes, and, and the the timeline, the like building a a, a, a timeline like around Cade. Um, the way I think about it is that this team is not going by the time this team is going to be good enough to like make the playoffs and make noise in the playoffs. Um, because although Kate is really good, he's not, you know, going to be that good right away. Um, so by the time this team is ready to like really compete for the playoffs, like Jeremy Grant will be an understudy free agent. And so you can decide at that point whether or not you want him to be a part of a Cade Cunningham led playoff Detroit Pistons, right? Or uh, you can figure out uh, a sign and trade, right? There, there are other avenues you can you can take to uh, turn Jeremy Grant into like different types of assets for the future. Um, the third thing is that like Troy Weaver probably doesn't care about any of this, right? Like Troy Weaver. <laughs> loves jeremy grant not only for um not only because like he knows him but the long-limbed athletic guy who came into the league with not a lot of skill and is now a very skilled player is like the troy weaver ideal right and so i think troy weaver thinks that there's a large value in having a guy like jeremy grant around to show other players on the team, like what happens when you're willing to put in the work over the course of your career, like where that can get you in terms of, in terms of NBA role, in terms of NBA contract, 
um, in terms of uh, like NBA, NBA like locker room pecking order. Um, and so I think that that is probably worth something to Troy Weaver that we're not uh, factoring in in this discussion. Um, but yeah, like watching Jeremy Grant isolate is pretty frustrating on a, on a night to night basis. I will say that um, that you can see the Pistons like run sets to get him an advantage. I'm thinking in particular of like there's a play um, against Toronto where he had he got an and one, but uh, it was they ran him off a pin down, which is something I've like been wanting to see. He had he had Kim Birch, and if he like went right away, he would have had a step on Kim Birch and could have gotten all the way to the rim, and uh, like that would have been that would have been good. Instead, he kind of like waited for Kim Birch to get set, um, you know, did a couple more dribble moves, and then decided to attack. And it's like it worked. He got the and one right, but if he was more decisive as a player, I think that would that would help him and that would help the team. And that's still something that like he's progressing and he's working on in his NBA journey. Um, and so like, I, I am not super worried about Jeremy Grant as part of like a, like what role Jeremy Grant is going to play as part of a future Cade Pistons playoff team. Um, like that's, that's a problem for like next year at the, at the absolute earliest. My main concern is that uh, Jeremy Grant is kind of sucking the life out of a lot of offensive possessions uh, uh, not doing a great, job, a great job of moving the ball, despite like the five assists that he had uh, against Toronto. I don't think he's, he's a great ball mover. And uh, so I'm, I'm worried more about like the day-to-day of how he's impacting the Pistons than, than the long-term. But I, I don't think you're wrong to worry about those things. And uh, it's been like, I, when, when you tweeted that, I knew I wanted to ask you about it because is that's like a very interesting way of putting it. And it's like I remember those stackhouse years; those were very fun, but yeah. like that also didn't go anywhere. Yeah, that, that's and that's kind of why, like, that's kind of why I mentioned stack because, you know, th- this is, geez, last this is almost twenty years ago <laughs> that we're talking about now, but like you know, stack was here for the rough years of that rebuild, right? I mean, they they really bottomed out, and he was he was the offense, yeah, right. He was the only reason to watch this. <laughs> yeah, until that 2001-2002 season, which I, if I if I look incorrectly, was his last year with the Pistons, right? When they won 50 games, and then they just sort of radically changed the offense. And so I, I didn't mean it to be critical of Jeremy Grant so much as I meant to say, like, yeah, this dude is doing something meaningful, but maybe maybe we keep in the back of our minds that it. It, it can be short term and that could be okay too. Like a change could end up being good if, if it happens, I think is, no, is kind of where I'm headed. I, I agree. All right, Ben, uh, Sadiq Bay. Sadiq yeah. Bay had an up and down week. He uh, was six of 17 against Houston, one of 12 against Cleveland and uh, four of 11 against Toronto, but three of seven from three, which is more important than going one of four from inside the arc. But his efficiency is still, kind of in the basement. It was more forgivable when he was scoring like 16 a night, but now he's down to 12.8 points per points per game on 36% from the floor, 27% from three and 75% from the line. So Ben, what's, what's wrong with Sadiq Bay? Yeah. I'm really glad you put this on the sheet list. I really want to hear what you have to say about this as well. 
Um, you know, here's here's one thing that I'm noticing. Um, I mentioned this a couple weeks ago. I feel like he's overextended beyond his talents a little bit. I think he's being asked to try to create too, too many of his own looks by himself. And I think that's resulting in some difficult shots. Um, I dove into the numbers a little bit. And I think one of the things that's interesting to me, um, if you look at how many of his field goal makes are assisted compared to a year ago. Uh, so two point shots, for example, about half, nearly 50% of his two point makes were assisted a season ago. Uh, this year, that's down to about 32%, which is really pretty significant, right? And that gets to the the point that he really is trying to generate more looks on his own for better and worse. Threes, not quite as dramatic, but still significant. 92% of his threes were assisted a season ago this year, 75%, right? So that's still three out of four of his threes are assisted. So that, that seems reasonable. Um, I, I think he's taking harder shots because he's asked to create a lot of them by himself. And I think he's sort of reaching the limits of where his game currently is and Taking difficult shots means you're going to make fewer of them, at least from my perspective. The thing that's harder for me to explain is the drop in three-point shooting, especially because a lot of those are still coming off the pass, right? Not from his own dribble offense. Um, I I speculated on Twitter in a couple conversations. I wonder if maybe there's some in-game fatigue that's just tiring out his legs because he's doing so much more off the dribble than he was a season ago, and if that could be contributing to it. Um, because that that's a hard one. You don't generally see a guy who goes, you know, close to 40% and then his, his shooting just plummets the next season. So that's what I'm seeing. Laz, like, what are you seeing? I'm really curious. So I was more interested in uh, something I like really noticed against Cleveland um, and it flashed again in, in the Toronto game. Uh, we'll see Sadiq take some threes with a leg swing that was not present in his shot last year. Um, you'll see his, his like right leg cross over his left side, which is uh, it's like it's a it's a very like weird looking leg swing, which is like why I noticed it uh, immediately. Um, and it has a little bit to do, I think, with his gather. He he's taking the ball like closer into his body, and like I. I don't, I don't love the leg swing, and we we've we've seen from Killian Hayes, right, that um, if the lower half of your shot is really busy, it's harder to like. It creates it creates like a it creates spin. You're literally spinning your leg. You're twisting against yourself, and so it's harder to control the amount of like spin your counter spin. You like need to put on the ball in order to make the shot. Um, I want him to stop doing that. <laughs> that is that is like a little thing that I think will will help Sadiq out on the shot. But I think part of the reason he's um, like subconsciously kind of tried to incorporate that is because of what you're talking about, Ben. Is because you're, he's trying to self generate. Uh, last year he took uh, like the big jump for him. Last year was he was learning how to take movement threes, like threes off screens and uh, like wonderful pull ups which is something he hadn't really done before. And he was saying like Wayne Ellington, I remember uh, like James Edwards, the third at the athletic had like a, a piece about like how Wayne Ellington was helping uh, Sadiq babe, like do that because Wayne's such an amazing movement shooter. And so um, you can see like he was, he's learning new footwork on the fly and, and making good use of it. Like this year he's having to deal with, uh, you know, less, 
like running off screens movement, but he's having to deal with more like uh, teams closing out on him. But uh, like with the thought that he might actually like do something with the ball in his hands. And so they're like closing out, um, not selling out wholly like on the three point arc, but you know, but still closing to his body because you need to respect him as both like a shooter and a driver. And so he's, trying i can see like in his head he's trying to do like okay i'm still do my one dribble sidestep pull up but i need to get need to create separation from the defender and so i need to like drift a little bit and so you drift a little bit and then the leg kicks out and the leg kicks out and you need to counter spin and all of a sudden like it's a miss um so i like i think sadiq is probably asked to do a little bit too much for the offense but at the same time like when when you see like these, when you see like these little mechanical things, um, like that's not ind- that's not a good uh, indication, as well. And so, yeah, Sadiq, I think Sadiq will be fine eventually. I think they will find a way around this. Um, but yeah, I, this, and like they they really need Sadiq, right? Like with the small ball lineups that they're going to play, Sadiq is going to play a lot more power forward, and so they're going to need him to perform. There, you've seen him, or like we've seen him be the lone starter with like all bench units, um, like playing small ball for next to, next to Trey Lyles and, um, it, and that, like that being an effective unit. And I think it'll be, it'll be really important for Sadiq to like find ways to self-create like within those lineups in particular, because like then he's not like taking shots away from like Jeremy or Kate. Right. And he's taking away shots from like Frank Jackson and Corey Joseph. And like, I think I'm pretty much fine with that. Um, but yeah, the at the same time, like if he's going to be as inefficient as he is, is like maybe maybe we should be less fine with that. But yeah, getting Sadiq right is going to be like paramount for this Pistons team. Yeah, I'm gonna watch those mechanics class. I have a working theory, but I'm I'm gonna be on the lookout for any open threes he gets. I'm I'm gonna watch those legs because I have an idea, but I don't want to speculate until I I pay closer attention. So I appreciate you flagging that. No, no problem. Today's episode is brought to you by Cars.com. With over 2 million vehicles and 50,000 more added every day, Cars.com will match you with the perfect car for you, your budget, your life, your style. And if you're ready to say goodbye to your current car, Cars.com will get you an instant offer to cash it in. Just start by entering your license plate and get matched with a local dealer who will write you the check. So whether you're looking to buy or sell, just go to cars.com. It's magical. All right, Ben. Uh, let's talk about Isaiah Stewart. Mm-hmm. Uh, Isaiah Stewart had a really great game against Toronto. 20 points. Um, I think he made, I think he only missed two shots. Was uh, was moving well without the ball. Ceiling. Uh, had a transition layup. Just like I was really impressed with what Isaiah brought against the Raptors. But that was the like sole good performance he had this week he uh, encountered a lot of foul trouble in both the Houston game and the Cleveland game um and like the with in in Houston that was less of a problem because Olenek played most of the game against Cleveland that was a big problem because uh obviously like Kelly Olenek was unavailable and so Ben you know how much how much more do we need to expect, expect from Isaiah offensively with the Kelly Olenek injury? Yeah, this is such a good question, Laz. And I'm I'm torn. I'm with you in that I, I felt like Toronto was the first time he 
I'll, I'll say it this way. I feel like Isaiah Stewart is in his own head about his offense. Um, he looks extraordinarily hesitant when he catches the ball and he's open. He even looks hesitant after getting offensive rebounds sometimes. Um, I noticed this in, in the Toronto game in particular. He got a, an offensive rebound. He's three feet from the bucket, and he dribbled the ball you know, to 18 feet away from the basket to hand it off to a guard. Like, put it back up, man. You, you earned the, you earned the right to shoot from three, three feet. I feel like he's just, he's has absolutely no confidence in his offense. So, you know, this question on the one hand, yeah, he needs to play. He needs to stay out of foul trouble so he can stay on the floor. And I think he has to be at least willing to look at the rim. Like you've called out multiple times already this season. Um, if he's going to be out there playing 26, 28, 30 minutes, he's, he's got to be willing to take the shot. If he's open, he has to, he has to at least force the defense to think about him. He has to. I think he can continue to do more of what he did against Toronto, which is to not try to, you know, create with the ball in his hands, but seal, get to the open spots. I think he and Killian in particular, Laz, I'm curious if you've noticed this at all. They've been put in the pick and roll a little bit more of late, it seems to me. And I think he and Killian are, are starting to get to know each other in that situation a little bit. So I think in that situation, he tends to dive pretty hard to the opposite side of the paint as Killian. And I think he needs to keep his hands ready and be ready to finish. So, yeah, I mean, I, I want him to do all of those other things. On the other hand, I don't want him to go try to be Kelly Olenek. I mean, Kelly is obviously, you know, he's 10 years older. He's a much better offensive player. He's much more mature and developed and all of those things. So I don't, I don't want Stu to feel pressure that he's got to somehow replicate and replace what Kelly Olenek lost because I, he's just not capable of that right now. That's not where his game is at. So I, I, I'd love to see more of what he did against Toronto, I guess is the short version. Seal hard, run the floor hard, keep yourself out of foul trouble. You know, and when you get the ball two or three feet from the rim because it's, you know, someone dished it to you or because you, uh, you know, you grabbed an offensive rebound, look, look to score, uh, punish the defense for allowing you, you know, to get that position and get the basketball in that position. That's what I want to see out of Isaiah Stewart. And then, Look, if you've got an open three once or twice a game, I think you, you got to shoot it because you have to be willing to do that. No, absolutely. I, I'm glad you brought up the the burgeoning like chemistry between uh, Killian and Isaiah. Um, there was there was a re- couple really nice assists from Killian to uh, Stewart in the, in the Toronto game. Uh, there's a transition one, and uh, there's one where Stewart had like a really he had a really good seal, the type of seal you're talking about. And Killian hit him with a really nice entry pass, jump hook, and like that's two points. Um, I think that we need to see Isaiah Stewart um, be featured a little bit more in the offense. And what I mean by that is that we need to see um, more pick and roll where the decision making for him is limited, right? Mm, if okay. we if we cut down on the 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 possibilities he has to run through is like he can play more uh instinctively and i think that will translate into better aggression including like more shots and so like i and i think that's something that they have started doing um with the return of Cade cunningham we've seen more pick and rolls um with the like elevated play from killian hayes we're going to talk about in a second um we've, we're seeing them run more pick and rolls and so i think that you know putting isaiah in positions that aren't like 20 feet from the basket uh, looking for a DHO uh, is going to be like a good thing for him offensively. But you are also right to bring up the foul trouble. 
um, the his two quick fouls against Cleveland like basically lost them that game. And uh, well, I mean, like yes, they missed a lot of shots. Like yes, the offense was not like didn't really have it that night. But um, with uh, with the lack of depth behind him, it's like you you can't afford to play small ball for extended periods against good teams, which the Cavs apparently are. <laughs> and so, uh, so yeah, we, we, he's got to be really cautious about his um, aggression on defense in, in particular. Um, yeah, it's, it's going to be, but like, this is a really big opportunity for Stewart, right? Like it's easy. It's very easy to see him like averaging like 30 minutes a night for the next six to nine weeks. And he needs to be able to make the most of it. Um yeah, one one guy who has been making the most of his minutes been is Killian Hayes. Uh, Killian Hayes has had a really great uh, week defensively for the Detroit Pistons. Had six steals against Cleveland. Was one of the lone bright spots uh, for the Pistons in that game. Had a double double against Toronto with uh, ten assists and uh, thirteen points, if I remember correctly. He's pushing the pace which uh, him and Kate are both doing this. And I think that's really important for the offense and be and like when he's not pushing the pace, he's able to still be a threat to space the floor because he's shooting over 40% from three, I think at the moment. And so Ben is like, I, I tweeted this out. It's like, this isn't the way I expected, like what a good version of Killian Hayes to look like. And uh, I don't think this is what, people foresaw when they evaluated him as a draft prospect but at this point it's really impossible to deny that like Killian Hayes is improving absolutely improving um not I mean the Toronto game in particular my opinion that was his best NBA performance from start to finish just just my opinion um but it wasn't just that game I think you're right I think you know, I'm I'm continuing to remind myself because there have been moments where I get really frustrated with Kelly, and this we have to be patient with this kid. Um, you know, he's still played so few NBA minutes, but you know, to the specific improvements, um, I think it's really interesting how being off the ball has has improved his three point shooting. I think Jay Edwards pointed that out on Twitter the other night. Jay Edwards, Jay Edwards the third about you know he posted the three point numbers for killing. It was over 40%. And I just kind of floored me. And I was like, wow, you know, off the ball, catch and shoot Killian Hayes becoming a dead eye corner three guy. Yeah. Not at all the way we expected him to be effective, but you know, the move to being, um, you know, almost, I, I would probably say secondary ball handler to Cade, you know, even if he brings the ball up the floor, I think he's kind of the secondary ball handler behind Cade in some ways almost looks like it's been a little bit liberating. It takes a little bit of the pressure off. And, and look, the thing about Killian is he's literally doing everything, everything, rebounding, defending, passing, making the right decisions offensively. The only thing he hasn't been able to do is finish, right? Finish off the dribble and and figure out how to be an effective and efficient score. So he's, he's so close, Laz, in my opinion. It's just that I, I think that it, it might take some more time for that shot to really come into its own. He's, he's finding it off the ball. The catch and shoot situations in particular have become particularly effective, but look, um, Killian is literally doing everything you would want a scrappy do it all sort of point guard to do for you. 
except finish off the dribble. That part of his game is just the underdeveloped part of his game. And I think the thing that's unfortunate is that I think for a lot of casual fans, it's it's not immediately obvious how important all of those other little things are, right? Like, I mean, his defense is just menacing. I mean, he's a pest. Like, if he's guarding you on board or off ball, like, that would be a nightmare for me as an offensive player. Um, you know, that, that block that he had against Dragic in the fourth quarter against Toronto, just a fantastic, just a clutch defensive play, super important part of the game. From, you know, the, this rookie, who essentially is a rookie, second-year player, but still feels like a rookie because of how much time he missed. Just such mature defensive play, uh, such aggressive defensive play, very tone-setting sort of play as well. So, yeah, I'm, I'm super pleased with Killian. I'm saying this to myself as much as anyone. We got to be patient with his individual offense. We just have to remind ourselves how young he is, how few minutes he's played, and just really appreciate all of that underappreciated stuff that he's just doing incredibly, incredibly well right now. To to your point about his defensive ability, what I would be just reiterating to him over and over again, if I were part of the Pistons staff, is all of the uh, all of the insight and strength that he shows on defense. He needs to bring that offensively i'm thinking of a possession against cleveland right where uh he like he tied up isaac isaac okoro in a transition situation and okoro is a really strong dude like you look at that guy he looks like like remember how stanley johnson looked where he's mm-hmm. just like oh my god that's a man at 19 mm-hmm. like that is that is what isaac okoro is like and killing was still able to like get his hands in he's got really strong hands get his hands in like force a force a tie up and um, you know delay a, you know turn and you know the expected point value of that possession like way down. Um, it's like if you use that strength consistently on offense, like around the basket, is like that is that is the missing part of his game. He definitely like needs to do that more often. I was pleased to see, you know, he he made that uh, layup should have been a dunk. Uh, against uh, the not quite set Toronto uh, defense in that game. Oh yeah, but that you, beautiful drive. Yeah, and like you, you can see he can't accelerate right, but he's still what, what I what I've noticed the most about Killian is that uh, if there are if there's like a big in the paint, that is that is when we see his aggressiveness kind of go all the way down. If there's not a big in the lane, if there's a, a smaller guy or a guy he thinks uh, he can finish over, he's still he's willing to like take that extra step and get out of the way of the rim. But if he sees like a if he sees a Clint Capella or he sees a Joel Embiid, like that's when the floater comes out. And at some point, like we we got to tell him like you're gonna have to embrace and accept some contact. You're gonna have to draw fouls on these guys um, because like that is what it's gonna take to like reach that next level of success in the NBA, but you're right, Ben, in that he's doing almost literally everything else that you would like to see, uh, out of a young player. And, uh, it's been, it's been, it's been really great to see from Killian. Well, he's like, you know, he's like a fill up the stat sheet kind of guy in the best possible way, right? Like he Mm -hmm. reminds me of not stylistically, but this is a guy who sticks out in my mind because of the role he played like, you know, Rajon Rondo, when he played for the Celtics, that dude was everywhere, but he didn't, need to score and didn't score a lot because he was surrounded by great scores, but pesky in the passing lanes, a menace defensively, a fantastic rebounder for a point guard, 
really good at pushing the pace and when knowing when to push the pace. Like as I think Killian's still 19 as a 19 year old, the level of maturity he has in all of those different things. I mean, it, it really is remarkable. And I, you know, I just don't think the casual NBA observer is going to appreciate how, how far along he is in his development at those things. All right, Ben, we're running a little long, so I'm not going to make you say something nice about Corey. Joseph. Oh, thank you. Yeah. Instead, we're going to head straight to Saban Lee. Saban Lee is averaging 37 points and nine assists in the G League. He's getting up a ton of threes and converting them at a really good rate, including an eight for 13 from three uh, performance in his last G League game. Ben, is Saban Lee too good for the G League? <laughs> oh, man, Laz. How do you talk about Saban without talking about Corey Joseph? I would really love to see this season. I'll keep it short. Maybe it's halfway through the season. I don't know when the point is, but I would really like to see Saban Lee get a shot over Corey Joseph. Corey Joseph, solid player, solid veteran. But man, with Saban Lee torching the G League, you just got to wonder if he can bring some of that to the second unit for the Pistons this season. I will also keep it short. I wrote this about Saban in his player uh, preview before the season. I'm really glad that Saban gets the chance to play in the sandbox that is the G League because there is no way on earth that Dwayne Casey would ever let him take 13 three-point shots <laughs> yeah. in an NBA game. For right? sure. And so like th- this is good for Saban, um, even if it looks like it's too easy for him. It's still good for him to get those reps in like live game situations. This is, this is l- literally the explicit purpose of the G League is mm-hmm. for guys like this. And so I'm glad that, I'm glad that Saban is tearing up the G League I do expect that in the future, Ben, we will see some Saban Lee over Corey Joseph someday. I'm ready. (laughs) All right, Ben, the Pistons shot 54% overall and 43% from three against Toronto. That's both season highs. I can't can't tell you how nice it was to see the Pistons actually shoot 40% from three for once. Um, They scored 127 points against Toronto. Did you notice anything different about the offense? Is it, where, was it as simple as guys made shots that they hadn't made before? Well, making shots covers a multitude of sins, and certainly the ball going through the hoop is going to make a, a big difference in how we feel about games and how we evaluate games as they're happening. So I think that's certainly part of it. Um, I also think there's an important distinction between scheme which is to say, you know, game plan. How have the coaches schemed up the way that we're going to attack any given matchup? And execution, which is do the players actually put that game plan into practice? Um, There's been a lot of criticism floating around of Dwayne Casey's offensive scheme and game planning and coaching uh, during his time with the Pistons. To some degree, I think that's fair. To some degree, I join in some of that criticism. I do think, however, that what we have seen, particularly this season, especially given the fact that we've had Kate in and out of the lineup, Killian in the lineup consistently for the first time, et cetera, et cetera, that what we are seeing that is particularly painful, whether it's the Jeremy Grant ISOs, whether it's the second unit, they get into this awful feedback loop of Frank Jackson pump fakes, dribbles twice, passes to Joseph who pump fakes, dribbles twice, who passes to Josh Jackson who hoists a three. I I don't think, I don't think Dwayne Casey's drawn that up. (laughs) I think there's some serious execution breakdowns that are happening. However, I do think that in Toronto, 
uh, we saw some some good parts of the scheme that were executed well. You mentioned pin downs earlier. I noticed Cade um, setting one of those in particular, I believe in the fourth quarter that that worked and turned into a beautiful offensive possession. So I, I don't think it's as simple as the ball going through the hoop at a 40% rate, although that's part of it. Uh, I think we have probably some some serious execution issues, and I think we have players resting on some bad habits they've developed in combination with, um, you know, Dwayne Casey at sometimes playing to his worst instincts as well. Um, so I don't think it's anything. I think it's all of those things. It's not any one thing. It's all of those things. And I think in Toronto, I think it's probably the closest thing we saw to all of those things working well at the same time. I do think that, especially in some of the bench lineups, um, when they're playing this read and react system, and it uh, guys are reading, and that is causing the feedback loop instead of you know calling a set play for you know something to happen a, a direct like you know this is option A, this is option B, this is option C. Um, you you run into like w- we take the best shot. I was like, well, it is the best shot. Let's continue hunting for the best shot. But the best shot is the one that you should have taken like a pass and a half ago. Mm-hmm. Um, I will say I have seen more. We are seeing the coaches try different things offensively. Uh, you mentioned you mentioned Cade setting screens. We've seen uh, both Cade and Killian act as a like act as a real screen setter for the other primary ball handler, and as a as a ghost screen where like they kind of bring up their defender and then like immediately slip uh, the screen to head to the rim. We've seen. Um, we're seeing more pick and roll. We talked about that a little bit with Isaiah Stewart. And I suspect like without Kelly Olenek, we will see like more of that in the offense. Um, so I, I, you see them trying stuff, right? Um, and I'm glad that the trying stuff eventually, you know, led to a breakthrough in Toronto. Uh, we'll see whether or not that continues, but I, I at least appreciate that they're trying things like, Hey, let's let Killian set some screens. Let's let Cade set some screens. Um, let's, you know, try to make the defense bend in a way that uh, isn't normal and wouldn't happen uh, with, uh, if we're just running like simple DHOs. So, so there it is. All right, Ben. Uh, oh yeah. Before we leave, I got to give a little love to Frank and Josh Jackson. Uh, both of those guys uh, were important bench pieces for the team in the Toronto game. Um, Frank Jackson in particular, I think the, the Cleveland, him figuring out how to score again in Cleveland was another like one of the sole bright spots of that game. And so I'm hopeful that both of those guys will continue to contribute um, meaningful production for the bench unit, which is going to need it without Kelly Olenek. All right, Ben, we, we got a five-game homestand coming up. The Pistons play uh, Sacramento on Monday, Indiana on Wednesday, Golden State on Friday, and the Lakers on Sunday. So, Ben, do we got two more wins in the future? Can we get another two-win week? <laughs> okay sacramento feels like it could be gettable i don't know correct me if i'm wrong but i i feel like that one could be winnable game um but boy i don't know indiana their interior weapons scare the crap out of me uh, golden state of course playing like they are the favorites to win the championship and the lakers as dysfunctional as they are wow they have so much more talent than we do so this this feels like let's let's try hard to win Monday because it, it could get a little bit painful later in the week. That's that's my opinion. I, I agree wholeheartedly. I watched uh, 
the competitive portion of which, which was not the entire game, but I watched the competitive portion of the Chicago uh, Golden State game on Friday, I think. And yeah, Golden State's defense is at uh, a level we haven't seen out of them in a year and a half, at least. It's, it's a great performance from them. Um, Sacramento will be an interesting matchup. I do think that's gettable. Um, Davion Mitchell on Cade Cunningham will be uh, like that's a matchup we've seen in college, right? Both mm-hmm. those guys are Big Twelve players. Um, we we've seen Cade won their last matchup because I think that was a that was like a Big Twelve uh, like semifinal championship game, and, and Cade ended up winning that game. And so yeah, I, I think that'll be an interesting matchup to watch. Um, the Kings started hot and are now I think they've lost like four out of their last five or something like that. So and but if you remember uh, Ben. Whenever the Kings come to Detroit, like flunky things, like fluky things happen. Remember that there's that Buddy Heald uh, game-winning three-pointer. There was a, there was like a, a really bad call, I think, involving Buddy Heald like two years ago. And so like I'm guarding myself against the the, the funkiness and, and the potential of an 0-4 week for sure. All right, Ben, let the people know where they can find you, where they can support you after you are down one appendix. <laughs> I, I tell you, I don't miss my appendix, as weird as it sounds. At BR Golfer <laughs> on Twitter. Uh, I love I, I love chatting on Twitter while the games are happening when I'm able to watch them live, which is about 70% of the time, I would say. Otherwise, I'm on Team DVR. But, uh, yeah, I love chatting about the games while they're happening as well. It's a lot of fun. Yeah, I'm, I'm joining you on Team DVR a lot of the time. Uh, in, uh, but So I'm not you know, live tweeting the games, but I do love to talk about the Pistons on Twitter at Last Chance. That's at L-A-Z-C-H-A-N-C-E. All right. Thank you all for listening to this week's episode of the Detroit Bad Boys podcast, and we will talk to you all next week. See you.